Yeah, so today I'll be talking about Rwanda and, and the Rwandan diaspora. And, and the title is called The Diaspora is in Charge. And by that I mean it's because basically those who are in charge of the Rwandan state nowadays return from the diaspora after the genocide um, from Uganda and elsewhere. I'll go into more in depth about that later. And they have this, so basically my argument today is to look at how, what, what happens when a diaspora takes over a country like this. It's a quite a unique situation, maybe we can compare it to, to Israel and, and probably not very many other places. Um, and there's, there's, so there's a strong concept of it being a virgin land, a land that was destroyed by the, um, the genocide. And the fact that the people who have, are now in charge have the moral right and also the historical obligation to create a new nation from the ashes of the genocide. And this is, when you talk to these people, these Tutsi who have returned from Uganda, for instance, they see it as... <coughs> They say, I mean, they don't usually say it, but they just slip by a slip of the tongue, they would say, we've got a country, we've got a land, or we have an obligation. It's a sort of strong thing, a heavy thing on their shoulders to rebuild this country in a new way. Um, and to build it as something that was very different to um, the Rwanda we know from before. So it's a new Rwanda they have to build. Secondly, I look at then how does this new Rwanda relate to diasporas now? How does the state relate to them? And I show that they're very keen on engaging with the diaspora in various ways. And I argue that this has at least three effects. First of all, it's about attracting resources, which is the classical you know, states reaching out to diasporas for knowledge, for economic finance, finances and so on. Secondly, I argue, and the reason I'm giving you the argument here is I might get lost during my presentation, I might not actually have time to get to the conclusion. Um, secondly, I argue that by doing this, the state is also exerting some kind of control over populations beyond the border, the diasporas. And they do this, this by categorizing them, by doing, having certain incentives for engaging with the country this way or that. So by, by, by working on the diaspora, they're also controlling them. Others have also explored this. I think my final point, which maybe is more novel, is the fact that by controlling, by engaging with the diaspora, the, the state is also performing itself as a state and actually becoming a state in the making. And um, we were talking earlier today about the um, edited volume by Quirk and Binyaswara and talking about mobility makes states. I think it's the same kind of argument that it's not just states who control mobility, but by controlling and, and assisting mobility, states also come into, into being states. Um, Finally, I explore how the Rwandan diaspora operates with three categories of, uh, no, the Rwandan state, sorry, operates with three categories of diasporas, where they talk about the positive uh, diaspora, the skeptical diaspora, and the hostile diaspora, or sometimes just the positive and the negative diaspora. Um, and I explore how it categorizes and regulates these three diasporas, and once again, this is part of performing its sovereignty as a state. So who is this diaspora who returned in 1994, and why did they return? Um, 
I'll just start with a small anecdote from an interview I did with this Mze, this old man in, in the Lutheran church in Kigali, who um, was born in, in he, was, he was born in Rwanda, but as a small child went to Tanzania due to the, the programs against uh, the, the Tutsi, and um, was brought up in Tanzania, got a very good education, was working quite high up in the, in the, the state system in Dar es Salaam, um, and he had planned to return to Rwanda once the RPF had won the war, once they, could have, once they had kicked out the Habyarimana regime, he would go back to his, his uh, country and help rebuild it. But he says he had not expected to return so quickly as he did. He returned straight after the genocide. And lots of people did return right, right, right in the heels of the genocide. Um, and he said it was because there was this sense of duty. There was this need to rebuild the country that he felt he really had to do. And he'd also been called upon by the RPF leadership. So it was him and this interview in this church, him and another Omze, old man who had also returned, and they were almost reminiscing about the good old days in 1994 where, you know, the country was completely devastated. And we were, we were sleeping on cardboard boxes in the offices and we're working day and night to rebuild this country. So there's a very strong sense of, of um, uh, obligation, but also a kind of enjoyment in the fact of being part of this process of, of, of studying something from, from scratch. And I think if we do remember the, the, the genocide and the war, it was a very short period. It took, uh, took, took place, it was three months, and there were lots of people were killed. But it wasn't a war that devastated the infrastructure of the country in the same way. But this is again part of the narrative. Everything was destroyed. There were no roads, there were no buildings, there were no houses. There were, you know, which, I mean, this is, wasn't like the civil war in Burundi that lasted for 15 years, when people didn't harvest uh, their fields for this time. time but this is the narrative. Um, and, okay, so the point being, people came home very early, they had this sense of obligation. There was also, I, I got from some of the stories, people had actually been forced to, or been pushed to return prior to the end of the, the civil war and the genocide, um, because the RPF had taken over large parts of the eastern part of the country prior to 94. And the population that they were supposed to liberate had actually left the, the area. So as one woman who had been encouraged heavily to return from Tanzania said, you know, the RPF, they couldn't just govern the trees. Um, so there was, there was also a political uh, project, project of saying, we need someone to come and populate these liberated RPF areas. And, they were, and, and so you had people living in Tanzania where, where basically the, the Tutsi refugees had done quite well and been accepted and had large herds of cattle were sort of encouraged to come back and help build the country. So whether they return voluntarily or forced or sense of duty, I think is, it's, it's a mixture of all sorts of things. A few more um, sort of accounts. Um, I interviewed quite a few people who were very young during the genocide and had returned from, from Eastern Congo. This guy called Serge tells me, I mean, he was just a dude um, living there. His father was quite a well-off businessman. And then there was this anti-Banyarwanda sentiments going on. People robbed his house and they stole his Game Boy. He remembers that as being quite nasty 
that um, these other kids stole his, his Game Boy. Um, and then he wanted to join the RPF even though he was only 15 years old. So there was a strong sense of wanting to be part of this, this new Rwanda. Um, yeah, so basically <coughs> there was a sort of whole chain of events that became self-perpetuating. Um, I don't know how many of you know about the Rwandan history, and I might be really boring you with this, but anyway, um, a main argument is that RPF sprung out of the fact that there was a, a, a anti-Banyarwanda sentiment in, in Uganda. It was very difficult for them to remain in Uganda. They weren't allowed to come back to Rwanda because the, the government said, we don't have room for more people, we're overpopulated. And this was one of the reasons why they took up arms, uh, the RPF, and attacked the country in 1990. And this had then a trickle-over effect that actually, because the RPF was uh, engaging in, in war in 1990, um, these anti-Tutsi, anti-Rwanda sentiments emerged in Congo in the early 90s, and to some degree in Burundi, which then made these people aware of the fact that they were not just Congolese, they were actually Rwandan, and then get involved in RPF. So you had this sort of um, effect of, of, of going over, I mean, reproducing, reproducing each other. I got another guy I talked to who was, had been brought up in, in Congo, uh, Faustin, he's taller than I am and more skinnier than I am. He says, you know, I know I'm the archetypical Tutsi, but he didn't realize that as a child. Um, he was just a Congolese again. And he, and in the 90s, his friends started teasing him calling him a Tutsi, and he would go home to his mum and dad. Mum and dad, they call me a Tutsi. What's a Tutsi? This is at least the story he's telling me. Um, and then they have to tell him, you know, actually, we are from Rwanda originally. So this was, yeah, the situation taking place. Once back in Rwanda, um, these people had this, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, there was this idea of uh, land that was devastated but full of opportunities. So here it is, destroyed, we've got to rebuild it, we can do something about this. Um, and we also have a duty to do so because we are the ones who freed the country and stopped the genocide. And part of rebuilding is about preventing the country from sliding back to the old Rwanda. There's very much an idea of a new Rwanda vis-a-vis -vis old Rwanda. The old Rwanda is dominated by ethnicity, intolerance, ignorance, darkness. And the new Rwanda is enlightenment, development, progress, unity. I have an example of one of these processes of positioning the diaspora, both the, the ones who returned in 94, but also the present diaspora, vis-a-vis -vis the, the local population, which was um, a campaign called the $1 campaign. And the idea was you can donate as little as $1 to supporting this project. And the project was student housing for, what are they called, um, orphans. And, but they have to be orphans of the genocide. Um, and I saw, I talked to the guy, and he had this nice little model, you know, architect model of the place, and they're getting the money, and, and, and so on. And, and also, if you read some of the, some of the uh, material they have, it's very much about this idea that 
it is the duty of, oh, so the, oh, sorry, I didn't say the $1 campaign is also for the diaspora to donate this $1. So it's, it's a way of engaging the diaspora in rebuilding the country. And if you sort of analyze it a bit, it's very clear that the saviors, I have another article, I've, I've talked about three different categories of people in the new Rwanda. You have the saviors, the victims, and the potential genocidaires. And the saviors here are, the, genos are the, the, the diaspora. They have they have the will, um, they have the abilities, they have the enlightenment, the insight to help people. They can send their money to the $1 campaign and build this nice little um, housing. Um, they're also the ones who stop the genocide. Whereas the victims, these orphans, the Tutsi who were in the country during '94, they couldn't stop the genocide, or maybe they wouldn't. Or you know, there's something. There's almost a mistrust towards them. There, they're weak. They're victims, and they need help. So you have the, they they need the saviors to come and help them. And then you have the backdrop towards this, which are the Hutu who might be genocidaires, they might not be genocidaires, which I won't go into here. But it was just to show this idea of the diaspora as someone who can come and save the country and save those who were there um, during 94 who were not able to do it themselves. So state perceptions on the diaspora now. Um, the Rwanda state is very keen on relating to the diaspora. It's actually in the RPF program. It's point number eight or nine, I think, in the original program from, from the 90s. And, I was, and the man in charge of diaspora affairs in the party um, explained the obvious to me. I was like, why do you have that in your program? And said, obviously, because they are from the diaspora themselves. That was the whole point of RPF, was to be able to engage in their home country being diaspora. And it's still a very strong part of the party program uh, to fight for diaspora rights. Another part of it is, of course, they know how dangerous a diaspora that's hostile can be. They were one of them themselves. So they know you don't just sort of forget them. Uh, I'll get back to that shortly. And as many other African uh, countries and other countries around the world, they've, there's a, a sort of strong policy um, interest in, in diasporas. They have a diaspora general directorate in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's actually changed names now, but it used to be. And I was interviewing the guy in charge of it, and he said, we don't have, Rwanda's a small country, we don't have minerals like they have in Congo, but the diaspora is our gold, it's our diamonds. So there's a very strong belief that the diaspora can help lift the country, and, and they have these three, three areas that they, they think the diaspora can help in. And one of them is the economic investment development, um, another one is skills and knowledge, the sort of brain circulation idea, and the final one is the goodwill ambassadors, they call them. And this is the idea that in some of the sort of um, scholarship on, on diaspora studies, so this sort of host country lobbying. So it's the fact that the diaspora can then affect NGOs and governments in, in Brussels or in Canada or wherever it is. I interviewed a number of these returnees um, coming from from UK, from Canada, or from France, wherever it was, and they had the sort of the usual diaspora stuff. Um, we can think creatively. This guy who started a nice little cafe in, in you know, he's from the UK, and we have this creativity which people inside the country don't have. On the other hand, vis-a-vis -vis foreign investors, we have we know the local market, so we're the perfect broker kind of person. Was was their argument? Um, but I think there were also other things involved in why the diaspora was, was 
decide to return and, and get involved. And part of it was simply, it was part of an sort of adventure for some of these young, and basically Canadian kids just finished their bachelor degree and uh, what to do, let's go to Africa. Um, and it sounds a bit like I'm making a joke out of them, but I mean, when I was talking to them, it was basically what they'd done. They went and hung out in, in Rwanda for a while and discovered it was a really nice place and they could probably start a, you know, a, a milkshake place or whatever they or start working for a firm or something. Um, and then another thing they also explained to me was that they would actually greatly improve their CVs. So if you come from a, an American university and you have a bachelor degree in political science or marketing thing, you've got 100,000 other people in the US to compete with. If you go back to Rwanda with your, your bachelor degree from America, quite a good American university, you're going to go straight into some ministry and within three years you're quite high up in the system. And then you can go back to the US and show what I've been doing for the last three years. They told me this quite openly. Okay. I'm sort of getting away from the point. But anyway, the, so the, the government has a, a number of policies to improve these three levels of diaspora invest, engagement. So making it easier to invest in the country, making it easier to buy property, all these kind of things. One of the more interesting ones is the Iturero, which is the civic education camps, which they have in many other situations, but they also have them for the diaspora youth. So the idea is you send your kids to uh, Rwanda for three weeks in the summer holidays, and they learn about Rwandan history, they learn about unity, they learn about the, the development visions for the country and the culture and so on. And they get dressed up a bit like in, in army uniforms and they eat simple food and they sing songs and this kind of stuff. I had quite an interesting interview with two people who were sitting at the, at the ministry there when I, I was there. And um, one of them, this um, woman based in Canada, but Rwandan, and she said, I don't care, I call it brainwash. I'm not sending my kids there. Um, and then this other guy who'd been living in, in uh, Rwanda again, who'd been living in Malaysia where he did his PhD, said, yes, maybe it's brainwash, but it's good brainwash. <laughs> um, so there's very, this is one of the, the things they're doing. Actually, presently, they've been moving outside. You don't have to go send your kids to, to Rwanda. They actually have them in Sweden. I was supposed to go to one in a campsite in Essex. Um, so they, you can actually do these diaspora training courses in the country where you're living. And this is about creating these goodwill ambassadors. So when I, when I started working with this, I sort of assumed that the diaspora implicitly, as it does many places, means these kind of positive, resourceful diasporas. It's not poor people living across the border in Tanzania. It's not uh, hostile Hutu living in Belgium. It's the, it's the, the, the doctor living in Canada uh, wanting to invest in his home country. Um, this is sort of part of the term diaspora, that it, it has this positive connotations. But actually I was quite surprised because this is the head of the the director general for diasporas openly talked about the negative diaspora, he said, um, without even me encouraging him, I think. So who then is this negative diaspora? And the, the negative diaspora is mostly the Hutu who fled in 1994, often to neighboring countries uh, like um, Congo, but also to Belgium, anywhere basically. But there are 
there's an idea that a lot of them in Belgium, France, Germany, and the Scandinavian countries, whereas the Anglo-Saxon countries are seen as less problematic. Um, and the idea, the main idea, is that this diaspora is what they call stuck in the mindset from 1994. In other words, they represent the bad old Rwanda and harbour what they also call genocidal mentalities. They believe in ethnicity. And also they believe that that must be what it's still like. And that's why they don't dare go back. Was they, send, they have all these internet pages where they tell each other how nasty Kagame is and how dangerous it is to go back. And so one of these officials from, from, from the government explained to me that a large number of them are simply misinformed and need proper information about the real Rwanda. They need to know that we no longer think in terms of ethnicity and that they're perfectly safe as Hutu now. And then, and then they have these sort of graduations, uh, as I talk about the, the, the skeptical, and, uh, and so you have not just in the positive and negative, but you have uh, different layers. And it's not quite sh clear what they mean by this. But certainly they would often talk about the fact that the youth can be reached. The youth might be being brainwashed by their parents. And maybe the parents who were adults in 1994 are lost cause. Um, but in any case, the task for the Rwanda state is therefore to provide counter-information. I think the most spectacular of these is what they call the common sea campaigns that they've had. Apparently they start in, 90, in uh, 2010. What's the time saying? Uh, 10 minutes, or uh, 13. Okay, fine. Apparently they started in, in December 2010 when uh, Kagame visited Belgium. I think it was Belgium, France. Um, and, and he went there to talk to the diaspora, as he does. He's been to Oxford, he's been to other places. Um, and apparently a lot of these old school Hutu Javieramana people turned up and they were really grilling him as this guy told when he was explaining to me. They were really going for him. Um, but what he did to show his magnanim magnanimity was to say, well, I promise you, come to Rwanda, I'll show you it's not dangerous and it's not true what you're saying. So he promised uh, free tickets and the costs for the 400 people. The only thing they hadn't, they would have not have been in Rwanda for the past 15 years, so they could just use it as a free ticket to go and visit their family. Um, and the, this was explained to me by a young guy who was born in Kenya, brought up in Canada, and now come back one of these, wow, it's fun to be in Africa um, guys. And he's, he's, he does films, and he's been invited to film this process. And he was telling me, you know, almost tears in his eyes, how fantastic it was to see them land on, in the airport, touch Rwandan soil, and then they were driven round the country from north to south, east to west, to see that the country is, is, uh, is safe and how much progress has been, has been made. The story that Alan tells me is also even more sophisticated than that, because I think, okay, come on, this is just a show. I and mean, they get driven around, they see all the nice stuff, you know. But he has a, a nice detail in his story, if you see it as a story, you know, a representation. Um, that is that at one point, one of these Hutus in the car says, please let me out. Stop the car, let me out. And the driver lets him out. And he gets out, and no one spits at him. No one shouts, he's a, shouts that he's a Hutu. And um, the importance for, for Alan ex explaining this um, this part of the story, I think, has two functions. One of them is to show that there was no problem. 
You can walk the streets of Kigali as a Hutu without being attacked. And the other one is to show that this was not staged. That even though he broke the whole um, manuscript of being driven around and got out, got out of the car, they still didn't do anything to him. So it's, it's not because Kagame is staging anything. Another example I had was a, a guy called Bernardin, um, who I met, he was a, a, a comfy, had a very comfy position, quite high up in the system, and had private business on the side. And he was one of these Hutu I had to go to talk to. Because of course we have Hutu who are welcomed in the system and are high up in the system and so on. And he told me how he'd fled in 1994. He was an adult at the time, young adult, and he was not close to the regime of Javier Mana, who committed this genocide. Um, and he ended up in Brussels. So he had a problem there, because he, he didn't want to hang out with the other uh, Javier Mana guys, but he didn't feel he could go back to um, Rwanda either, because he was a Hutu. So he decided to become 100% Belgian, and studied law, and worked in Belgium, and spoke the languages, and so on. And then a senator came to visit in 1999, and had this discussion with the, I don't know why he turned up, and he was very critical of her, he explains. He's, again, one of these stories he's telling me. He was so critical of her, of her critical of Kagame, critical of the regime, and she was so impressed by his critique that actually she invited him and 10 others for an extra meeting, a somewhat more intimate meeting, where they discussed the problems of, of Rwanda. And again, she promised him, like the other ones, that if they came to Rwanda and saw it, they would be safe. And he said, you know, cross your mother's, Hard. What, no, what you've got the name of your kid. Please promise me. And he went back, and then things developed that way. Um, so what I'm trying to show here is this this idea and of the sort of like magnanimity of the state in these kind of in narratives about how Hutu are convinced of the goodness of what's happening now. And he's actually now himself part of a task force, an ad hoc task force. Whenever Kagame goes to, to Paris, to Toronto or something, Bernardin and another people have been there two weeks beforehand. And they've found the right people to come to the meetings so they can have these discussions with Kagame um, when he's there. So, in conclusion, I guess what my, I'm I've been trying to say is that there's this sort of idea of a diaspora in charge, which gives a unique possibility to create this new state. Um, and it's a new state which is seen as inclusive and tolerant, but also relies on controlling and excluding certain groups, such as the negative diaspora. So, as much as they invite someone like Bernadette to come, there are still lots of Hutu who don't come back. And there's a lot of critique. I haven't actually studied this, but I've heard others here. If you do go to the diaspora in, in Belgium, for instance. Um, and this kind of engaging diasporas is rather than just keeping them away, it's a, it's a kind of state performance showing how the state is in control and how the state is this inclusive and tolerant state. And I think, especially looking at how it relates to the negative diaspora, is interesting because it is this um, means of disciplining the negative diaspora into becoming a positive diaspora and as a way of categorizing diasporas and also 
it's not just about getting those people. It's not just about having Benetton or 100 people coming and seeing the country is nice. It's also a spectacle, if you talk about it as a state spectacle, which has a broad audience. And the audience can be the whole of Rwanda. It could be international community showing look what we are doing to our diaspora. What, look what we are doing to the Hutu who actually originally tried to kill us. Um, so I guess that's how I've been looking at it as a kind of state spectacle. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much.